Well, good morning, everyone. Again, a very warm welcome to you if you're visiting for the first time. Um, as you heard, my name's Brian, and I am filling in this morning for Matt, who is our lead pastor. He's on paternity leave. He just had a baby a few weeks ago, and this is his last week off. He'll be back next week, and so I encourage you to come back and, and, and listen to Matt as he continues to take us through the Gospel of Luke. But this morning, you get to hear, not from Brian, you get to hear from, hopefully, my hope is that you would hear from the Lord today. Um, we've been working through the book of Luke in a series titled The Good News to the Poor, and today we'll be looking at chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and a message that I've titled, Compare or Despair. Let's start by taking a look at the full picture here, and then we will go back and dig into the intricacies of the passage. So starting in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he, being Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee... Simon, who had invited him, saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other... 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are, her sins which, which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you join me as I pray? God, we pray this morning that you would meet with us. God, many of us that are just exploring who you are, uh, trying to figure out what this Christianity thing means, God. We pray that you would awaken our hearts this morning to hear what you would want to say to us, God. God, I pray that you would speak through me for your name's sake, for your glory. And we ask it in your strong name. Amen. Now, as we read that story, uh, as we look at that passage, uh, it's easy just to say that Simon was off his rocker. I mean, this guy, Simon the Pharisee, was just off his rocker. 
He, he was out of line, and his judgmental assessment of the woman was just off. But, but I don't want to be so quick to say that. Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to dive back into the motive of Simon, and, and ultimately into the motive of all of humanity. And to do that, I'd like to, to dive back to a, a fairly well-known story. I'd like to take us back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden. And by doing so, I hope to shed some light, not only on who this Pharisee was, but, but who we are. You see, in the first five days of creation, God created all of the provisions necessary, all of the goodness, all of the splendor for a, a home that would be fit for his image bearers. You remember that in the, in the beginning, God said that I've created man and woman in my image. And then on the sixth day, God went ahead after preparing this place. He fashioned man and later women out of the dirt meticulously and with care. And he breathed life into them. And he said to man, image me. You are my mirrors. And you above all other creation, above all else that I've made, will display my goodness. And so Adam breathed in for the very first time. And likely the very first thing he saw was the living word of God. We know that because Genesis tells us that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. He had that kind of relationship with God. And so he sees God and God smiles at his child and says, I've created you to be like me and so you are. You will love and desire goodness because I'm good and I've made you good. This earth is yours, Adam. Guard it and tend it and fill it with millions of good like me. Then God invites Adam and later Eve to sing with him and to rejoice and informs them that they are blessed above all others. They're blessed above all other creation because God created them specifically to know him and to love him. Then God looked over his creation and declared the benediction. You creation, you people, you humanity are very good. You remember the first five days, God created all the landscape, all the setting for his image bearers, and he said, you are good. But then he created man, and he said, you are very good. And at this proclamation, the choirs of heaven sang. They filled the earth with majestic melody and harmony and rhythm. The morning stars sang, and the trees of the field clapped their hands, and the mountains bowed low in worship. Adam says, Oh, the Lord is good and he's made us good. Hooray for our good God. Hooray for his good creation. But shortly thereafter, the end of their goodness came. In one fell swoop, the lie was believed. You know the lie I'm talking about. The lie where the serpent told them that they could be like God. They could eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in one fell swoop, as the lie was believed, the goodness was doubted, all was lost. Rather than continually celebrating the goodness that had been given to humanity, humanity was now subject to futility and bondage and decay, relentless, painful groaning, as it says in the book of Romans. Misery, suspicion, sickness, wandering, and destitution of heart replaced the majestic music of the celebration. Death filled God's beautiful home so that it was no longer holy good. 
It had fallen. Evil infected all that God had made. And in place of the Lord's benediction, you know that benediction, you are very good. In place of his approval, wrath and the curse would reign instead. And so banished from their homes, these image bearers became shattered mirrors. They became strangers. They became isolated from one another and from God. They were put out of the garden. And from that point to present, there began this desperate search to regain the goodness humanity once had. We, we are longing for goodness. Man's anguishing, striving, futile efforts to achieve goodness supplanted or replaced the gracious, joyful benediction that God pronounced upon mankind that you are good. And so, in desperation to hear it once again, humanity sought ways to bestow it upon themselves. Now, we may seek that good job by um, adhering to a set of rules to please God. We may seek it through those that we interact with day in and day out by comparing ourselves and looking for people to say good job to us. Or we may deceive ourselves and pronounce that blessing upon our own selves. You can look through all the stories of the Bible and see the common thread of humanity trying to get the well done. All through the Bible, you guys. I mean, look at Cain and Abel, right? Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel got the well done of God and Cain didn't, right? Or look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Man had come to a point in Genesis chapter 11 that they no longer needed God's help to be good. So they rose up and built a tower to God to their own honor. They united and they said, we don't need God to be good. We can unify and build this own tower. We can get the well done by our own efforts. So that they could pronounce the blessing of the benediction upon themselves. But God wasn't for it. He, he sent confusion down to the Tower of Babel, broke up their language because we're going to see later he had a different plan to bring that goodness back to humanity. This is our story. The legacy of every person who ever drew breath and tried to prove that he was really okay. That's us. Would you agree? In our passage, we saw that Simon invited Jesus over for a meal. So let's look into that in light of our broken human state. In verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, so, sorry, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with this ointment. Now, let me paint the picture of what's going on in this scene. This woman, this woman was a woman of ill reputation. Notice that she is labeled as a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, because she was wearing this alabaster flask jar of perfume around her neck, uh, it increased her sexual appeal. It was believed that she was a prostitute. Now, we, we can't be certain, but it, it certainly seems that this woman was a prostitute. 
And, and back in that culture, this religiously charged culture, I mean, prostitution almost today is not nearly frowned upon like it was back then. I mean, this was a, a culture that, that turned their eye and thought, oh, how, how dare them do that? How dare they debauch their life in that lifestyle? Here, it's almost glorified, the whole idea of prostitution and, you know, hey, they're just trying to make a life for themselves and they're, they're, they're doing as best as they can. But that was not the case in this culture. So this woman comes to Jesus full of guilt and shame with everything on the line. As Jesus is reclining at this table, what most likely would have been the scene is Jesus was leaning on his left arm over the table with all the Pharisees. And his right arm he was eating and his legs were out behind him as he was reclining at this table. That was the common practice in this day and age. And you might say, well, how does this woman even get in? Well, most likely they allowed people to come in and observe as this guest of honor was there. They left the doors open. People could come into the courtyard as they were eating. Can you just imagine? Here's this woman. She's well known for her sin, right? Her sin is notorious. You get that? And yet she has the audacity, some might say, to approach Jesus as she does, and she begins to weep. Now, this wouldn't have been a pretty scene. The Greek tells us the water is pouring down from her face. And it begins to fall on the feet of Jesus. And so as the water from her eyes falls on the feet of Jesus, she takes out her hair and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair and repeatedly kiss his feet in that somber state. And then she takes this flask and, and to open this flask, she would have had to break the neck of it. It had this long, narrow neck. And to open it, she would have had to have broken it. This is the same flask that she used, as I said, to lure men. And she breaks it and begins to rub this valuable, fragrant ointment on the feet of Jesus. This woman came to Jesus unconditionally. If he was who he said he was, and she's been hearing about him, he's been on the scene for a while. This isn't the first time this woman has heard of Jesus. Then she implies that he can have what little she has. So let's bring it back. If the human condition is to seek for the well done, as we've already looked at from the story of the garden, then this woman has come to the realization that she is unable to bring anything to him that would earn her the well done. She's, bro she's like, I got nothing, Jesus. I don't, I don't know. I can't come to you with my goodness. I have nothing to bring to you. I have nothing that's honoring. I have nothing that's deserving of the well done. She comes to him not based on her goodness, but based on her wretchedness. Knowing that God was good. So these onlooking Pharisees, they're shocked, right? They're shocked at what they're seeing. Let's put ourselves a little bit more in the situation. Imagine that you're out at a meal, right, with your friends. And this woman of the city, again, not the glamorized prostitute, but a real, I don't know if you've ever been out in King's Cross, but the real deal thin and skinny from drugs and face worn by life and wearing a miniskirt and high heels and, and, and broken. Imagine, better yet, not even at a meal, imagine she comes right here into Anchor Church and she begins to fall at, you know, at Steve's feet crying. She begins to fall at the honored guests. How would we react? My hope is that we would react with love. 
And we wouldn't look over at her and go, wow, what's she doing? Doesn't she know, like, that's a distraction to people? And, you know, in church, you've got to be civilized. You know, what, how would we react to it? I personally think that it's likely that many of us, though, as we assess it from this end, we'd like to think, oh, no, we'd be loving. We'd be gracious to her. We'd be kind to her. But I think in reality, we might sadly act like Simon act. How did Simon act? Let's look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. You see, Simon's trying to figure out who this Jesus character is. And he has the mindset that righteousness is attained by doing good. But what's happening is Jesus isn't playing by the rules. Jesus isn't playing by Simon's rules. In the story, Jesus allows this immoral, unrighteous woman to approach. And it confuses Simon. It throws him for a loop. Simon then assesses that this woman is not good. And then he goes on to assess that Jesus must not be the prophet that he declares himself to be because he's keeping company with this woman. So Simon compares himself to the woman. Basically, right? We're only seeing his thought processes, but Simon compares himself to the woman and he assesses that he's better. He's more worthy of receiving that benediction. He's more worthy. You see, the Pharisee here in the story and the Pharisee in us doesn't understand how to come to God empty-handed. Nor do we want to come to God empty-handed. We, we don't want to come to God like the woman with nothing to bring. We want to come bringing our goodness to God. If I come to God empty-handed, then there's nothing that I've done which entitles me to the well done, right? If I'm coming to God and I'm like, God, there's nothing good, then how am I ever going to get the well done from God? How am I ever going to get the benediction? If I, on the other hand, come to God having upkept his law, then I feel as though I've earned or deserved the well done and I'm able to glory in that well done. We want to have something to contribute. Basically, we want to make God a debtor to us. We don't want to be a debtor to God. We want to make God a debtor to us. We really are God and he is just there to fulfill our needs, right? We might not say so, but we sure act like it. We sure live like it. Our, our hearts sure act like it. We're not really that different to Simon. You see, Simon was religious. That was important to him. And so Simon judged the women based on the law. He compared himself to her based on what he thought a person should be like and how they should behave. Because religion was important to him. What we think is good and what we think is evil is the measuring stick we will use to judge others. Let me say that again. What we think is good and what we think is evil is the measuring stick we will use to judge others. So, some of you might not be religious. Some of you might not judge people based like Simon did on religion. You might not compare yourself to people on, in a, on a religious basis for keeping the law. You might find your importance in the way you look, say. In your fashion. It's important to you. And so, as someone walks by you on the street, 
that doesn't have a sense of fashion or isn't as good looking, you judge that person based on the standard you've set up, right? If parenting is important to you and you see someone parenting in a way that doesn't measure up to your style of parenting, what do you do? You judge that person. Man, that person doesn't know how to parent. If music's important to you, if someone has a different style or, you know, of music, you, you judge them for that. If your occupation is important to you, again, you're not religious, your occupation is important to you. There's people in here in that, in that scenario. You'll judge other people's performance, your coworkers' performance, based on what you think they should be acting like, right? I do. Guys, I think we really need to search our hearts and see how we really aren't that unlike him. We really have a judgmental, critical, comparison heart because we're longing for the well done and we want to bring something to the table. We want to have something to offer to God. We're constantly judging others and comparing ourselves to them in an attempt to elevate ourselves to a place of receiving approval. You know what I love about this passage? Jesus sees the heart. That, that's what we've seen time and time again through the book of Luke. God judges the intent of the heart. He sees Simon's heart. Simon hasn't even said this. I mean, we might actually pretend like we've got it all together. No one might even know that you're judgmental. It might just be a thought. It might just be a motive of the heart. And yet Jesus sees past that. He looks at our motives and he exposes them for what they really are. Let's look at how he does this for Simon. Verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to, Simon, to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus answered him, you've judged rightly. You know, often when people are blinded by sin, God would send a prophet to speak in a story. I mean, think of Nathan. When David, the great king, was blinded by his sin, God spent, sent Nathan, and Nathan spoke in this storyboard to try and tease out the motive of David's heart. Well, here Jesus himself is doing the same thing. He's speaking in a parable, we call it, or a story to bring out the issues of the heart. So Jesus addresses Simon with a parable. And the point of the parable was very simple. If I owed a million dollars to someone and they forgave me that debt and you guys all owed that same person a hundred dollars and they also forgave you that debt, I'm going to be more stoked than you. That's basically the point of the story. I'm going to be stoked and you're not going to be as stoked. I'm going to be more appreciative than you. I'm going to love that lender more than you. That's obvious, right? That's basically what the story is saying. But what wasn't obvious was Simon's understanding of himself. He didn't really view himself as one with a debt. Or certainly not as one with a debt that he couldn't pay back based on his own goodness. Here's the major problem for Simon. Simon thinks he can pay the cost of forgiveness of his debts. He believes he will be 
God will be indebted to say good job to him if he does good. Simon doesn't understand his depravity. He doesn't understand his human condition. Simon was the one in the story that failed to love much because he failed to see the severity of his debt. You see, Simon and the woman are in the same situation here, really. Jesus isn't saying, surely, that I can love more than you because I've had a bigger debt. No, he's saying that if you really understand the severity of your debt, you would all love. Whether a spider bite kills you or a lion rips you to shreds, you're still dead. If a person's bitten by a spider, they look pretty when they're dead. If a person is ripped away by a lion, they look ugly when they're dead, but they're both dead. The same with our debt. Both of these debtors needed to be forgiven. They were both equally dead. There's not one person that's more dead than the other. They're both debtors. Let's see how the woman was forgiven, though. The debtor that owed most and knew it, right? The, the woman was the one, obviously, in the story that owed the 500 denarii, and, and the man, Simon, was the one that owed the 5 denarii, a year's wage based on a day's wage. But they were both debtors. But let's see how she was forgiven. Verse 44, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I've got to read you this quote out of this book that I've been reading called Give Them Grace. It's a parenting book, but I thought it was perfect. Listen to this quote. Forgiveness for deep offenses breeds deep love. Forgiveness for perceived and reasonable slights breeds apathetic disdain. A society riddled with immorality will not be a pleasant place to live, surely. But a society riddled with self congratulatory morality will be satanic and resistant to grace. It will be nice and tidy, but loveless and oh so dead. And it will be only a breath away from murder. Remember, it was the religious leaders, not the prostitutes, who called for the execution of Christ. I love that quote. When and only when we realize the severity of our brokenness, and our inability to attain to the goodness, can we experience true love that springs forth from being forgiven? It's so freeing, you guys. It's so freeing. The point is simple. The woman relinquished control in reckless abandon to God, she, to Jesus. She, she, she relinquished all control. But these people had no reason in their mind to surrender these religious people would rather compare than despair, right? The woman came with all of her despair, all of her brokenness. The, the, the Pharisee comes with all of his goodness and, and compares himself to others in hopes of getting the well done. 
The religious person would rather justify themselves than being justified by their surrender. Keller says, some of you know who Tim Keller is, your ability to love people and life is completely due to how deeply you see your sin and your ability to be forgiven. So as we wrap things up, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Which one of these debtors are you? You're either the debtor that doesn't realize the cost of forgiveness or you're the one that does. There's there's nowhere else to be. There's no fence riding. You either realize it or you don't. Now, the next question I want to ask you is how do you know which one you are? How how do I assess? What's what's the, the litmus test to show whether I'm the debtor that was forgiven much or the one that was forgiven little? What's the litmus test to see if I really understand my depravity? What was it here? Love. It was love, right? Simple love. So as we already saw, we come to God having empty hands and an open heart, but it should then translate itself into a life of love and sacrifice. That's the litmus test. Do you love? Do you love? When you look at other people, are you gracious when they fail? Are you? Realizing that you yourselves are utterly disgusting, that you yourselves are in the same situation. You're broken humanity. You're no better. Or do you judge them? How do you treat others? That's the litmus test, really. We've been talking a lot about doing whatever it takes to love our city. But I wonder, do we, do we truly love our city? Do we truly love people? Do we truly love God? Love is the litmus test. And I invite you guys to search your hearts. Those of you that are here today that call yourself Christians. Have you, like the woman in the story, found the one thing so worth living for that you'll give all else for it? Have you found that one thing? I have, though I don't often live like it. Have you found that one thing that is so worth living for you'll give all for that cause? Or are you resolved to compare yourself for the rest of your life to those that are all around you in hopes that your goodness is better than the goodness of others or at least good enough to one day gain you right standing with God? Will you compare or will you despair? Will you remain self-sufficient or will you come in a broken and contrite heart to the only one that can change your heart? Will you come like the woman or like Simon and the rest of humanity? Will you be like Simon looking for the futile effort to receive recognition and well done? Let me bring it back full circle. We started by looking at the human condition and the striving of all humanity for that good job, right? That that well done that we're all looking for. But the Bible's pretty clear. 
The Bible's pretty clear that our goodness is as filthy rags. That's our best. In God's economy, our best deeds are filthy rags. And, and, and the Greek for that word is menstrual rags. I hate to be so graphic, but that's the truth of our best deeds. You know why? Because our goodness is only an extension of our selfishness. When I do good, it's for my own glory. It's for my own set of approval from people. It's for the good job. So my, even my goodness is dirty. The Bible says, none does good, no, not one. But here's the good news. The way in which we truly get the well done, it's no longer a mystery, you guys. It's now attainable, and here's how. You ready? Ready? This is going to be profound. You ready for how to get it? Receive it. What? Receive it? Receive it. Just like the woman received it. Receive it. The, the key is found in these last few verses. Let's read in verse 40, 48. And he said to her, Jesus speaking to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Implying this must be someone greater than a prophet. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, forgiveness never happens without someone getting hurt, you guys. Someone gets wronged no matter what. Either the person who owes the debt pays it, or the person who deserves to be paid back the debt has to absorb it. And in our case, we cannot pay it. Brian, I thought that you said this was good news. Well, it is. Because we can't pay it, but God got hurt for us. God doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. Sometimes we like to think of God in our culture as like this Santa Claus figure. That in the end of the day, he's going to come through with the goods, right? He's not really going to put coal in my stocking. He's going to kind of turn a blind eye to the bad I've done, and he's going to come through with the goods. But that is not who God is. That is not a part of God's character. God does not turn a blind eye. Rather, he gets hurt. He offers forgiveness of sin by absorbing it. And the way he did it was by sending his son. You remember when his son came to earth, Jesus was here, and at his baptism, the, the clouds basically opened and God pronounced from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Boom, there's the benediction again. My son is good. You are not, but my son is good and perfect. Then Jesus would go on to live a perfect life. But he would exchange the good job from his father for the deafening silence as he bore the wrath of God for our sins. As he suffered and died for us, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That was Jesus for you and for you and for you.
The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the pain. He despised the shame and he endured the cross for you and for me. You see, the woman wasn't the only one that found something so precious worth living for and giving all for. She wasn't the only one. Well, what do you mean, Brian? Listen to this. The Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is like unto a merchant. And a merchant, this, this merchant goes and he searches for fine pearls. And when he finds these fine pearls, he sells everything that he has. He goes and cashes in. And, and he takes the money and he cashes in and he goes and buys that pearl of great price. The Bible says that we are that pearl. That's us. We are the pearl of great price. And you're not the pearl of great price because you're great. You're the pearl of great price because you need saving. You need purchasing. He sent his son of infinite value to pay the debt that we could never pay and to die the death that we deserved. And so we can either choose to keep seeking for the good job, benediction, or we can receive by grace the forgiveness that is ours through faith, like the woman in our story did. Now often we stop there with what Jesus has done for us and what God has done in pronouncing the good you know, news to us, the, what we call the gospel. But that is not the gospel, purely that our debt has been paid because he did more. How could he do more? I mean, how can someone possibly do more for us? He did. Let me tell you what else he did for you. Let me tell you what else he did for me. It's called the great exchange. God incarnate comes down and takes our blame and, and, and we get God's righteousness. We get his goodness. It's gifted to you. How can you be well done? How can you be good? It's given. God's righteousness is bestowed upon us. So he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. So now the benediction, you are good, is true of us, but not because of us, because it's been given to us. You guys get that? The goodness is ours. I always compare it to like someone that's been in prison, right? Someone that's been in prison for a long time, there's some new evidence that comes up and exonerates this person. They get out of prison after however long they served as captives, and they get out, and they've got no hope. They don't know what to do. They often end up, even if they never offended the first time, offending to go back to that place of comfort because they have no hope, no security, no life, no identity. And so... Imagine the person that's exonerated gets out of prison, the door slammed behind him, and a limousine pulls up, and they, put, they get out of the car, they put a robe on him, they put a ring on his finger, they have a, a job for him, they have a feast set up. He is an heir to the president of that country. He is a child of the king. He's given all the goodness as a gift. That's what the gospel is, you guys. Righteousness, this is a definition, is a level of goodness that can withstand the scrutiny of a perfect holy God and earn the benediction, you are good. It's perfect obedience in both outward conformity and inward desire. It is goodness for the sake of God's great glory, 
motivated by a pure and zealous love for God and for his neighbor. It is the right action at the right time for the right reason. And a record of this kind of goodness and righteousness can never be earned. It can only be bestowed by. So what do we do? Well, some of you today need to believe and to receive for the first time. Some of you have been searching for the well done, the good job in all the wrong places. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. The Bible tells us that God is long-suffering. He's patient. It tells us in his word that he doesn't take pleasure in our destruction, but rather he desires that all would come to a saving, loving, living relationship with him, which is why we were created. So I invite you today, if that's you, to respond in that way. Others of you need to take an honest look at the judgmental Pharisee inside of you or the idol of the blessed benediction that you're longing for and repent. You need to come back to the beauty of simplicity that you are simply forgiven and let that captivate and motivate you afresh, you guys. Ephesians 2 1 through 9 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, I love the but gods of Scripture, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Is that you today? Again, have you found something so worth living that you give it all up for it? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I pray that God grants you eyes to see the severity of your depravity, that you might come into a personal relationship with Jesus with the one that purchased you, the pearl of great price. We're going to respond now. I'm going to have the band come up and we're going to sing some more songs. But I, I really want to encourage you guys, to my right and to my left, there are a couple stations that um, have the elements that symbolize the broken body and the blood of Christ that was poured out and spilled for you. And, and I, I invite you to go up and to remember what Jesus did truly for you and dip the bread into the grape juice. And take some time, if you need to get on the ground and cry out to God, this is, there's, there's no one judging you. <laughs> you can be the woman today. You can weep before God, knowing the gravity of your sin, and knowing the beauty of his forgiveness. Today, for the first time, or for the hundredth time, the same. And if you want to accept Jesus, uh, Brad and myself are going to be up the back to pray for you. If, if you feel like you want to make that decision where 
I've been living for the good job. Today is a day that I want to put my faith in Jesus and I want to receive the forgiveness and righteousness that is in him. Come and pray with us. There's nothing majestic or magical about us praying. We just want to stand with you and agree with you and pray with you in that way if you have never done that. And so let's really worship the Lord. Let's really um, meditate on the things we've heard. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've accomplished on our behalf, God. God, I confess that I too often am the Pharisee. I too often live for the well done of people around me. I too often, God, try and pronounce the blessing upon myself. God, I ask that you would indeed search my heart, know my ways, know the impurities in me, and create in me, God, a clean heart. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you that there is indeed nothing that I can boast in. Lord, I come to you with nothing to bring. It's only to your cross I cling. Empty, God, broken. Change me, transform me. I ask it in your strong name. Amen.